Before we turn to our scripture passage this morning, I want to pray and then actually open up not with our main text, but with a testimony from the Apostle Paul uh, as sort of the introduction to what we want to uh, consider this morning. So I want to pray first and then turn your attention to Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Our God and Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to come before you and to come to your word, asking that you would be, through your Holy Spirit, illuminating our minds to understand uh, the power and grace of the scriptures, that you would use your word with us and in us, that you would by it transform our minds enabling us to be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world. That in your word, we would see the word incarnate. Uh, Through the scriptures, we would be encouraged in him. And that the outcome of our uh, being here to worship, uh, through uh, your word being read and proclaimed to us, prayers being lifted up, songs being sung, we would be more deeply equipped to be salt and light to this generation. This we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to focus as we begin this morning on our necessary motivation to know Christ. That is to say, I want us to understand that knowing Christ is that which we ought to be most highly motivated toward. And I want us to see that the Apostle Paul lays this out for us in terms of his own personal experience. And when we think about how God has communicated to us through the book of Philippians, it is very much... God's precepts and truth taught through the personal experience of the Apostle Paul. So hear these words from Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I I want you to think about the way the apostle has described knowing Christ. He describes this matter of knowing Christ as that which surpasses worth. 
Now, in, in, in one sense, uh, that's a strange phrase, surpassing worth. But, but the meaning is, it's that worthiness that is above everything you can possibly value as worthy. It's, it's that which is valuable above everything you can possibly imagine as valuable. It is, it is that which is worthy, that which is valuable in the most ultimate sense possible. Paul is saying that knowing Christ is all of that. And that this pursuit of knowing Christ is so incredibly important, significant, valuable, worthy to the one who would call himself a Christian that in comparison, everything else can be lost. In fact, not only lost, but everything else can be counted as rubbish. Not something to treasure, value, desire at all. Now, these are very, very stark terms. Valuing Christ above everything else so that in comparison, nothing else really matters. Poetically, the psalmist puts it this way. This intense desire to know Christ. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the brooks of water, so my soul pants for you, O my God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Now, that intensity of desire in the Apostle Paul, I want to submit to you as we experience that, as we would know that, it is our greatest good because it meets our greatest need. That's what Paul is teaching. Now, I began here this morning with this spiritually uh, ultimate kind of consideration that our greatest need in life is to hunger, to thirst, to desire, to be motivated by this, this desire to know Christ because as we come to the Word of God, His very means of grace, His very means of grace by which we actually come to know Christ more deeply, we need to ask ourselves, how then do we do this? How then do we come to know Christ more deeply? How then, in that pursuit of Christ, do we come to understand Him in all of His glory, in all of His excellence, in all of His greatness, in all that He is and has done for His people? But we come to the Word of God. We come to the written means by which we are to know Christ. And so the main focus of this morning, the main point that we want to make this morning is in terms of how we look at the Scriptures in this pursuit of knowing Christ. We can express it this way. 
to know Jesus more fully. We need to know him as he is promised, as well as as he has been given to us in terms of fulfillment. We need to know him as he has been prophesied, as well as our knowledge of him because of his first advent. And we need to know him in all of the types and shadows by which Scripture presents him, as well as knowing him in his glorious incarnation. Which is to say, we need to know him from the Old Testament, as well as knowing him from the New Testament. That's the theme of our preaching this year. It's to know Christ as he is presented to us in the Old Testament scriptures. And it's Jesus who teaches us to do so. So now we come to our text for this morning from John chapter 5. In this particular passage, Jesus is involved in an intense disputation with the Jewish leadership. Pharisees, for sure, uh, because of what Jesus says about them. The Pharisees, far more, the scribes and Pharisees, far more than the Sadducees, are those who put everything into the word of God in terms of their hope. And this is what Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, out of those words that Jesus gave on that occasion, we can have three directions for the way I want to present our message this morning. Uh, The first would be this, a great reminder that all of the scriptures bear witness of Christ. Uh, Secondly, that in all of Genesis, we have seen Christ. And then thirdly, in the rest of the law authored by Moses, by God through Moses, we shall see Christ too. So, The message this morning is to reground us in an understanding that we must see Christ in all of the scriptures and especially in the Old Testament and then to review what we've seen so far in the book of Genesis and then to preview what we shall see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, in the first place this, uh, Jesus, the apostles, the New Testament, teach us. All of the scriptures bear witness of Christ. So the New Testament teaches, consequently, that we need to know all of the scriptures in order to know Christ. Let's begin by recognizing that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament endorsed the Old Testament and endorsed the reading of the Old Testament and the study of the Old Testament. Now, just as an aside, why is this significant for us today? You know, our denomination is not a large denomination. We have a few 
pastors and preachers who are sort of known within the world. Uh, but there are some southern preachers who have a family heritage whereby they are known all over the south. Um, Dr. Charles Stanley, a, a great pulpiteer, a man mighty in the word of God throughout his, his life and preaching career. A son, Andy Stanley, who seemed to follow well in his father's footsteps um, with certainly the giftedness of an orator. And certainly uh, a popularity by which he has drawn thousands and thousands and thousands to his local church ministry, as well as those who read his books. Well, in the last uh, half year or so, uh, Andy Stanley has been saying that New Testament Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Now, he's been roundly criticized and he's tried to nuance his position. He's tried to adjust it. But in the final analysis, he holds to this idea that one of the reasons why people of today can't really get on with the Christian thing is because of the Old Testament. So his point is, forget the Old Testament, focus on Christ, focus upon the New Testament, and we can win these people for Jesus. As you can see, what... I want us to appreciate and understand is that that idea that we can somehow unhitch the Jesus we love from the Old Testament is a directional error. But even far worse than that, it is fundamentally a great crime against the Christ who was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. So the great concern here is to recognize that all of the scriptures proclaim Christ. You cannot know Christ in all of his fullness in terms of the person and work of Christ unless you are committed to all of scripture's testimony to Christ. That's our great concern. And so I want us to be reminded again that the New Testament so thoroughly endorses the study, the reading, the mastery of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, where do we turn to see that? Well, probably the most significant passage that we find in all of the New Testament is going to be in Paul's second letter to Timothy. And not just verse 16 and 17, but going back to verse 15, where he says to Timothy these words, how from infancy, from the time that Timothy was a baby, Covenantal parents recognize that here is an example as to how you should begin with your own children who are born into the faith, born inside a Christian family. When do you begin the word of God with them? Well, Paul says in Timothy, it began in Timothy's life when he was an infant. How from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, note several points about what Paul is saying to Timothy. First, the description of the Word of God. These are the holy or the sacred Scriptures, which means that they are those writings that are specifically set apart because of their God-breathed nature, 
as a means of grace. Why? To make us wise unto salvation. Now, I want you to understand that since the New Testament was not yet fully written and the New Testament was not yet complete, that when the Apostle talks about what Timothy has known from infancy, his reference here is to the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, notice, Timothy... You have known from infancy the Old Testament scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in God. Uh, No. Not just some generic faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not some testimony to the God of the, the Abrahamic faith. Not some God of the Old Testament who somehow doesn't yet reveal the fact that he is a triune God whose Son is the Messiah, the Savior. No, he says, which is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if you miss the fact that Paul is saying that the message of the Old Testament Scripture, the salvation message of the Old Testament Scripture, was designed to make someone like Timothy as a child, before he even comes to know about the Christian faith, a child able to know that in the Scriptures of the Old Testament, there is the testimony to make you wise under salvation in Christ Jesus. Now, both Eunice and Lois, his grandmother and mother, were believers. And so they taught him from the Old Testament scriptures, from those scriptures, to have faith in Christ. We see as well that the scriptures have this power and authority to do this because they're breathed out by God. Everything that scripture says, God has said. Uh, Peter had that same perspective in First, Second Peter chapter 2. He says, Verse 20, 21, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Holy Scriptures breathed out by God to make us wise unto salvation by faith in Christ Jesus, which then, Paul goes on to say, are specifically designed for our spiritual growth in the grace of salvation, such that they teach us and they reprove us and they correct us and they train us in righteousness for this outcome. So that the man of God, a technical term which means essentially elders who preach and teach, but the application would be for everyone so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped by the word of God for every good work. All of the scriptures proclaiming Christ to enable us to grow in grace so that we might do good for the kingdom of God. So, There is the endorsement of all of Scripture focused in Christ. It brings salvation, but it brings sanctification and growth and equipping for service. Then we recognize, secondly, uh, the fact that the Old Testament, according to the apostles, preached Christ. Uh, We see this as Peter's testimony in the book of Acts in chapter 3. He and John have this opportunity to 
proclaim the word of God. Uh, This is after the day of Pentecost. Uh, There's been a man who's been healed from his crippled condition uh, after so many years, and it draws a great crowd, and Peter is preaching. But what he says in verse 18 is this. But this is how God has fulfilled what he foretold by the mouth of all of the prophets that his Christ would suffer. The cross of the Lord Jesus, the work of the Lord Jesus, the saving, reconciling, redeeming, justifying, propitiating, expiating, atoning work of Christ was preached by the Old Testament prophets. Not one, not two, but Peter says all of the prophets. A united testimony that the Messiah of Israel, the Redeemer, would come and he must of necessity suffer in order to pay the penalty for our sins. Peter also in his first epistle says this, chapter 1, 10 and 11. 10 to 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were not only serving themselves, but you in the things that they've now announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. Now, Peter says, Spirit of Christ was operating in all the prophets of the Old Testament to predict not just the sufferings of Christ, but the subsequent glories of Christ. There's no deficiency in the Old Testament witness to Christ. It was the prediction of his earthly suffering and his heavenly glories that the prophets foretold. So Peter's position all of the prophets proclaimed the saving Christ. The Apostle Paul, same viewpoint. Beginning of the book of Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Notice, the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding His Son. What is Paul's doctrine here? The Old Testament has predicted and prophesied the coming Son of God, the Christ, the Savior, even the good news, the Gospel. And then, of course, Jesus. Uh, On the day of His resurrection... The road to Emmaus. As he visits with those two men who have their understanding of who Jesus is at that point veiled. But they listen to what Jesus says. 
O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So we see it's Jesus who first endorsed this thoroughgoing study and mastery of the Old Testament because Jesus was saying that this, this Old Testament, this, this, this word of God given to you, that is which prepared Israel for his coming. It's that which prepared Israel to understand, though for the most part they didn't, that he was the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who was going to suffer on their behalf. So, our main text then. What Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. The scriptures bear witness of me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, the, the point of application here, if you, if you hunger and thirst to know the living God as he has revealed himself preeminently in his son, the Lord Jesus, as Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If your desire is to truly know the living God in Christ, then you must know the word which has proclaimed Christ, which means we must be committed to seeing the Lord Jesus in all of the scriptures, seeing him as he was prepared and presented through the Old Testament scriptures, as well as fulfilled in all the promises of the new covenant. All of scripture in order to know the whole Christ. Now, this we have been doing. Um, we have been looking at uh, the book of Genesis so far. And I want us to just simply have a little review lesson now in terms of the things which the book of Genesis has so far revealed to us concerning the glories of Christ. Uh, I'm going to focus upon nine, though we actually covered a few more than nine, but, but nine of those particular things which the book of Genesis presents to us that declares to us Christ. So we begin with creation. Christ shows up in creation because Christ is the agent of creation. So we have to make the, the connection between the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and Christ. And this the Apostle Paul does for us in the book of Colossians and other places in the New Testament, uh, the passage which we read this morning to open up our worship this morning. Specifically, verse 16 of Colossians 1, where Paul writes, For by him, Christ, all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And of course, as the Apostle John, at the beginning of his gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the point is, Jesus Christ is the co-creator of all things with his Father. Secondly, we, we noted the Sabbath day. We noted that at the end of the creation week, the Lord established a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest. The word means rest, a day of rest. Uh, repeated then in the Decalogue, both in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. This becomes significant when Jesus is having a controversy with the scribes and the Pharisees at the end of Mark chapter 2. And in order to defend what his disciples were doing on the day that they were walking through a field of grain, plucking grain in order to eat on the Sabbath day, he declared to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who could be Lord of the last creation day? Who could be Lord over time in this way? Who could be the one who could actually be the Lord over the law that's given that man should observe this day as a day of rest unto the holy God except God himself? And so when we read the creation account from the first part of Genesis 1-1 into chapter 2 where the Sabbath day is established, we are reading about the agency and work of Christ, the divine Son of God, co-creator of all things that have been made, and even the Lord of all time in terms of being Lord of the Sabbath day. We continue on and we remember that the creation account is about those created to be the image bearers of God. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, specifically, God creates human beings, male and female, in his likeness after his image, sets them apart. Image bearers of the living God to procreate more living images all throughout the world. And Christ is connected to this because in his perfect humanity, he is himself the perfect image of God. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where he writes about how the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What is the glory of Christ who is the image of God? You see, human beings were created to reflect the glory of the one whose image they bear. But it's Christ who is the preeminent glory of the Father in His perfect humanity. He himself fulfills everything in his humanity which we have failed to do. We must not read the Genesis account in the creation of human beings 
without thinking about Christ, who is the perfect image of the living God. And then, of course, Genesis 1 and 2 together present the institution, the creation ordinance of marriage. And there is a connection there. It's something we might have missed, except the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, well, we might have missed it, but not if we drew a proper analogy from God presenting himself as the husband of Israel in the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament counterpart of that by the Apostle Paul is in Ephesians chapter 5. He begins by writing about the, the relationship of the wife to the husband and then the husband to the wife. But what he does when he writes about the relationship of the husband and the wife is he presents what we would call a Christological model. Husbands, love your wives like, singular, love your wife. Any particular husband, love your particular wife. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then the Apostle Paul brings in this very significant connection between a husband's love for his wife, a husband's service to his wife, a husband's commitment to his wife, by quoting Genesis 2.24, which in chapter 2 of Genesis is the very definition of marriage, for this cause or for this reason a man shall leave father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul goes on to say, and this is a great mystery. But I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. We can't think about the creation ordinance of marriage in the book of Genesis without also thinking about Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church. Chapter 3 of Genesis takes us into the fall. And we know that Genesis 3.15 is that great promise, the very first promise of the gospel in all of Scripture concerning the seed of the woman who's going to be the great deliverer, who's going to destroy uh, the work of Satan. That seed of the woman, of course, is Christ. And in the second chapter of Hebrews, we read how Christ took on flesh and blood like his brothers in order that he might taste for every taste death for every one of them so that through death quoting now from Hebrews 2 through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil you can't read Genesis chapter 3 without reading about Christ, the seed of the woman who would conquer the work of the serpent, the devil, the prince of darkness. We go on to consider Abraham and the covenant, Genesis chapter 15. Remember the story. God, using two symbols, passes through the slain animals, the cutting of the covenant. Passing through the slain animals while Abraham is in a deep God-induced sleep. 
so that Abraham himself can contribute nothing to this covenant at this particular point. But it's God in two symbols passing through the slain animals, which symbolically represented that the ones passing through the animals were saying, we will fulfill all of the conditions of this covenant, but if we should not do so, may it be unto us as it is done to these slain animals. What is commonly known as a self-maledictory oath. God himself pledging the responsibility and the undertaking of both sides of the covenant from the side of the covenant initiator, the sovereign God, and from the side of the covenant keeper, Abraham and his seed. But Abraham is not permitted to walk through the slain animals in this ceremony. It's only another symbol of the living God who does so, indicating that God takes upon himself all of the conditions of the covenant to fulfill all of those conditions and all of the reprehensible conditions of the covenant should that covenant be broken by those for whom it is made. That is, he pledges a curse upon himself if this covenant is not perfectly kept. But of course, Abraham and all of his descendants have broken the covenant. So the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, in the very passage that he's talking about, Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 22, brings in this reality that Christ, Galatians 3.13, became a curse for us. Christ took the curse upon himself in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant so that all those who placed their faith in Christ would not suffer the consequences of breaking covenant with God. Christ suffering the curse in our place and on our behalf. Now, that's not the full picture of the gospel, but more of the gospel is given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 when God requires Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. Now, what is so incredibly significant about that passage is that God uses in the Old Testament in speaking to heaven from heaven to Abraham, speaking about Isaac, the same kind of language that he's later going to use to designate his own son. He says... Take now your son, your only son. Oh, wait, God, didn't you know that he had another son, Ishmael? No, uh, Ishmael is not the child of promise. From the standpoint of the Abrahamic covenant, this is the one and only son. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, who is your beloved, whom you love, and then offer him as a sacrifice on a mountain that I will show you. The drama of redemption played out before us. Because on that third day, on Mount Moriah, within the same place that Jesus Christ would be crucified almost 2,000 years later, Isaac is offered up on the altar. But before the sacrificial knife can pierce his heart, 
God speaks from heaven and says, do not do this thing. And off to the side, Abraham finds the substitute for Isaac, a ram to be slain in the place of his son. All of which, preaching the gospel that Christ, bearing the curse, would be the substitute represented for us. So that at the end of Genesis 22, in verse 18, we have proclaimed there God saying to Abraham, In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, And that seed is Christ. We move on in the story of Genesis to Jacob, fleeing from all of the family dysfunctionalities of which he was a central part, a deceiver, winding up at this place called Luz to spend the night. And while he's dreaming, he has an incredible vision of a ladder stretching from right there to heaven. And in this ladder stretching from there to heaven, he sees angels ascending and descending. And when he awakes, he says, this is Bethel. This is the house of God. This is the stairway to heaven. It's a life-transforming experience in the life of Jacob. We don't even understand all of what it means until about 1,800 years later. Early in the ministry of Christ, Jesus says to Nathanael, You shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus identifying himself as that ladder that Jacob dreamed of, that stairway to heaven, telling us that there is not anything that happens from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth, that does not pass through the person and the presence and the power and the authority of Christ. Jesus is the one and only mediator. That which brings transcendent heaven down to earth is found in no one else but in Christ. And that which brings us up to heaven for everlasting life with the Father is found in no one else but Christ. Christ and Christ alone. And then the ninth story from Genesis is the story of Joseph, which climaxes in the realization that Joseph becomes the savior ruler of his brethren from an earthly destruction, which proclaims to us by parallel that Christ becomes the savior ruler of all of his people from an everlasting destruction. Now, that's how we read the book of Genesis. We read all of these stories and we see Christ 
because the New Testament tells us to, we see Christ in the midst of all of these stories. So that why, by way of review. The preview is much briefer. Nine things we're going to see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but nine things, and I'll state them quickly. We're going to see Jesus in the burning bush where we find who the living God is. Christ is that one. We're going to see Jesus as truly the Passover lamb, that which bought the Israelites out of slavery, buys us out of the servitude of sin. Jesus, you'll see, is the true tabernacle that we find in Christ the place where God dwells. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the one who offered the eternal sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is himself the sum of all of those sacrifices because his atoning death is the once-for-all necessary sacrifice to save us. Jesus is the bronze serpent. As the serpent, the bronzed serpent, was lifted up and all who would look to that serpent would live from their earthly plague, all who look to Christ will be saved from that everlasting plague. Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus is the rock. And Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. In the book of Hosea, there's a call to repentance. Chapter 6. The prophet says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he might bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. That's where we need to be living. Come, let us press on to know the Lord. Let's pray. Help us, Almighty God. Help us to long for Jesus in every way. Help us then to press on to know him. This we ask in his own name, Jesus. Amen.